Uh, I want to invite you to uh, prepare to open in your Bible to the third and the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And uh, as you're doing that, let me just invite us to come before God one more time in prayer together. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts draw us closer to you, who are our rock and our redeemer. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Have you ever been surprised by a call to go and do something that was so utterly outside of your expectations that your immediate response was, really? Really? I remember liking a girl in middle school and uh, being just heart a Twitter when she wanted to talk to me after class. And I had finally this opportunity to interact with this amazing person that I had admired from a distance. And as my heart pounded within me and she began to talk to me, she said, would you introduce me to your best friend? <laughs> and I thought, really? Really? Or imagine you get called into your boss's office. And uh, you're somewhat fearful that you're going to get a reprimand. You're, you're falling short of expectations. And instead, the conversation is about a promotion. And you say, really? Really? Or, or you're sitting in the doctor's examining room. You've come in because you've had this sort of stubborn ache in your lower back for a long time. And the doctor has gone out and now comes back and says to you much more soberly than you would ever have expected, I'm afraid, that the tests say it could be cancer. And the breath goes out of your body. And you say, really? or you're sitting on the team bench. It's a very tight game. It's all coming down to this one final penalty kick or this one closing foul shot. And for some reason, the coach looks down the line and points to you and said, get in there. You can do it. And you say, really? Life contains some really wild moments over the course of our journey. We have our minds set on how things usually work or how things ought to work or how things would work as we want them to work and then there's this wild curveball or slider that comes at us at times and throws us utterly out of sorts for good or for ill. And what's really wild really, really wild, is that sometimes God is the one throwing the breaking ball. God's the one who's bringing about this unexpected 
and counter and call in our lives. Have you ever felt that? I think all of us live with certain assumptions or suppositions about how God works or how God should work. He ought to show up in consistent, predictable ways. He ought to do what makes common sense. He ought to ask what I am comfortable with, what I am gifted for, what I am ready now to do. And then God causes or allows, he commands or asserts things that confound our expectations to the point where we say, really? 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 I have this theory that part of our struggle about all of this is that we are not entirely happy with having a real God in the first place. Uh, this may be hard to admit, um, but I think it is a lifelong struggle for most of us, even people of faith, to truly have a God and not just an extension of our ideals or our sense of how life might work. I think many of us are good with God as the divine therapist, the comforter. Uh, we're good with God as the cosmic concierge, the one that helps us through life. We're okay with the notion of a heavenly ATM, someone who provides for us what we really need, or a spiritual charging station that we can plug the Tesla of our soul into when we feel low. But to have a God that does not base his actions and his decisions and his strategies on customer satisfaction surveys or on polling results or on my need to have him act in a previously established way is a different kind of experience. <laughs> and if God is truly God, and not just applying for that job, then by definition, he is entitled to his own rule set. He can put a fence around a certain tree and say, don't go there. Don't go there. He can rouse us out of our slumber and say, get up and go there. And this is within the nature of what it means to be God, to issue these kinds of directives. At all times and in all places, God if he's really God, is utterly free to work out his providence according to his will and his way. And that's going to be really important for us to remember as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus because we're going to stumble across things like plagues and the death of kids and all kinds of other wacky and difficult and wild kinds of circumstances and we're going to only naturally say, really? I don't get that. I don't get that, God. And that very outburst is just part of the relationship. It's just part of the nature of what it means to be a human being before an actual God. 
I had an epiphany when I was in my late 20s about all of this. I had been watching a documentary where scientists were explicating about the universe. And I was understanding, maybe for the first time at that particular level, how big the universe is. I mean, I was starting to realize that I had too small a container, that my mental images were, were constrained, and that what science was discovering through the extension of our vision out into the universe and through all the instrumentation we now have for detecting the nature of reality, that, that this is just, that the concept of infinity is reality. It's, it describes what is, appears to actually be out there. And, and in the documentary, the, even the scientists were acknowledging that it's just, it's really hard. We're just not wired to even be able to take in the size of things that are out there beyond this world. The program also talked about how, the, uh, how matter itself, the things that we can touch and feel, the person next to you, the chair you're sitting in, these things are actually not solid objects. They're actually the result of the, of the interactions and the movements and influences and relationships between subatomic particles between whom there's mostly space. And, 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 and these particles are stupefying and staggering to those who study them because when you try to measure them and locate them one place, they have gone someplace else. And they appear to actually be able to be in more than one place at one time. And, 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 and even when they're separated from their partner uh, particle, they are in relationship so much that a change in one produces a change in the other at incalculably vast distances. By some mysterious linkage that we're still trying to figure out. And about that time I read this Bible passage again that I'd read earlier from Isaiah chapter 55 in which God is saying to the prophet Isaiah, as the heavens are higher than the earth, as the expanse is greater than you can imagine, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it hit me. It converted me, actually. It made me realize that if there actually is a being who created this vast universe, of such mysterious and magnificent energy and interconnections, who am I to second guess him? <laughs> who, who am I to, to think that I'm gonna sort of get my head around his plan, right? Because as I've said here before and to friends in other settings, I'm like an ant trying to contemplate particle physics. I mean, I'm not a nice ant. <laughs> I'm a beloved ant. I've got a, I've got a pretty healthy ant brain, as ants go. But I'm in conversation. I'm in relationship. I'm trying to understand 
the author of quantum physics. And that's just one of the things he's done. And so I must bring humility to my relationship with God. I must expect, actually, that he will defy and violate my expectations. I must trust him. I must be willing to really have God and not just my projections. And I imagine when I am shaking my fist at this great genius, there are moments when he just has to think to himself, really, Dan? Really? I don't think that changes the fact that as God continues to do things his way, human beings are understandably shocked. And he does seem to be extraordinarily embracing and accepting of this. Read the Psalms. Read how many times you see David shaking his aunt antler at his aunt fist at God. Along these lines, one of the most famous stories of the Bible records an encounter in which God comes to a human being in, in an utterly unanticipated way, in fact, an unprecedented way, and then he asks him to do a completely unexpected thing. When we meet him in Exodus chapter 3, Moses, you may remember him as the one-time prince of Egypt, is now living in the Arabian desert of Midian in exile. He has committed murder, He's had to run for his life. He's left behind his royal lifestyle and is living out in the desert. Once an heir to the throne of the world's greatest human kingdom, Moses has spent the last 40 years trying to lord it over some sheep, a big pack of smelly sheep. He's had a lot of time to think now. He has spent enough time in silence and solitude, no doubt, to grow wiser. He's had the active mentorship of a very, very good leader in his father-in-law, Jethro, uh, a priest of Midian and the owner of a vast flock. Moses has been enrolled for four decades now in in the character academy that we call marriage. And I'm sure that's improved him or helped him in important ways as that institution does its work on all of us. Exodus 3 begins like this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It bears mentioning here, by the way, that, that Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Mount Sinai, or at least the hospital. Um, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are are thought by scholars to be the same place. In fact, I think people who lived on one side called it Horeb, and those who saw it from another angle called it Mount Sinai, but it was the same place. Though scholars today are not united on where that mountain is actually located in the Arabian desert. Uh, It became known, and this is the important part, as the mountain of God because of not only what we're about to read next, but because of another very important encounter between God and this same figure, Moses, 
in which God is also going to speak again in a very important history-altering way, and we're going to get to that later in our journey, and I'm not going to spoil uh, that story by tipping it off. But the text goes on and says, and I quote, that there the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, clearly, it did not burn up. That was very unusual. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. Now, there's been an, a lot of speculation about this particular scene, and you might be interested to know that, that through the years, uh, many biblical scholars have come to the conclusion that the angel of the Lord that is mentioned as speaking from within the bush, and by the word, the word angel, by the way, the word angel means messenger, it's somebody who brings the message of God, um, that that messenger of the Lord is the same being that appears later on in the biblical narrative in the book of Daniel in the time of Babylon. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon um, is, is trying to enforce his will against the Jewish people who are now subject to him, and a, and a Threesome of guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, oppose his demand that he be bowed down to as God. Because they know who, that there actually is God, G-O-D, capital, and in the singular. And so he throws them into a fiery furnace. And in that story, which we've covered years ago, you may recall, um, they're spared and Nebuchadnezzar looks through the flames and sees a fourth figure in the story that appears like a son of man. Scholars believe that was Jesus. That was the pre-incarnate Jesus present with those three servants in their moment of need and and many believe that this presence, this voice speaking out of the bush at this moment to Moses is the same being that we're meeting the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking for God and calling out to Moses. Up to this moment, Moses' interest in the book or in the bush is not theological. Uh, it's phenomenological. It's kind of like, really? It's burning, but it's not burning up. He doesn't associate what he is experiencing with God. He, he, he just thinks that this thing he's seeing is really wild, and he wants to get closer to understand it. He's never actually heard of God using flaming shrubbery to appear to people. Like, there's no record of this. He would not have expected this to be a God encounter. And, and in fact, this never happens again. Flaming bushes are not part of our, our liturgy. Uh, we, there's no holiday of the flaming bush in the Christian year. You know, this is a, like a one-time event, which I think suggests one really good takeaway for us. God can be very surprising in the way he appears to us and speaks to us. 
He can do fresh things. I know I've had a few instances where I believe I have heard him audibly speaking to me. And, and I, just, I just heard a, a statement in my head that I, I, had, I, I was convinced I had not manufactured and yet seemed exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. I was talking just this past week with a, a woman going through a tremendous time of conflict in a relationship and uh, just a terrible and, and thinking about just leaving this relationship entirely behind and, and as clear as a bell, the voice rang out in her head, be still and know that I am God. And she knew in the depth of her being she's meant to stay in the marriage. She's meant to not give up yet. She's meant to look for a way and, and to, and to and to seek God's help in finding it. I've heard of people and talked with many who, who say while they were reading some passage of scripture, a particular word or a phrase or a verse suddenly became luminous. It was like it was on fire. And they just knew that this was the message that they needed to hear and to respond to in this moment. God was personally addressing them in that moment. I've known people who experienced the Lord uh, speaking to them through the words of their children. In fact, the Bible says, and a little child shall lead them. And, that, and, that, and what the kids said, it was like so clearly, this is God trying to redirect me in ways that I need. I've talked with people who have felt like they've seen these patterns in creation that reassured them somehow or gave them a template for what they felt they were supposed to go and to do. I've seen people even who believe that God gave them an ability to recognize recurrent messages on signs. Now, some of this stuff sounds wild. Uh, Some of it is, is, is difficult to take in, which is why I would always caution you if you feel like God is speaking to you and he is, and. that it's always wise to check your perception of the message with mature believers. To check it up against whether this is the kind of thing God may have ever said to other people in scripture. Under no circumstances, if you hear him calling you to jump off a bridge or, or to do something destructive to other people, should you take that seriously? You wanna go talk to a, a brother or sister or a pastor or a helping professional if you feel like the call is to do something destructive. But one lesson that I think is a takeaway from this particular passage is that God has a way of meeting us sometimes surprisingly in the flow of life, in the daily, in the ordinary things. Moses was just doing his job. He'd probably crossed that particular hillside before. And he's just out there when all of a sudden he has an encounter that starts to redirect him in an important way. What if he'd been distracted and missed it? What if if Moses had been going along and he was just checking his texts, getting the feed? He just utterly missed it. Because it says in the text that when he did see it, he realized he had to turn aside to actually fully see it. So it wasn't right there in his face. 
It was something that could, could be noticed if, if he had the eyes to see, if he had the ears to hear. Jesus says this. Jesus says that the voice of God in our lives and, and, and his ability to, to direct us, to go where we, he wants us to go, is connected to us having eyes to see and ears to hear. And so I think one of the best prayers that we can make when we get up out of bed in the morning is, Lord, give me today eyes to see. Give me the ears to hear. Let me be present to the world around me, to the people around me, to your word, so you can speak to me and guide and direct me. Well, time is tight, so I'm going to just summarize the next part. As Moses approaches the burning bush, God calls him by name, God calls him by name. Up to now, it's just burning. There's no voice coming out of it. And, and God actually waits for Moses to move. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't shout out as Moses is rushing by, uh, take this exit ramp. It's actually Moses who initiates the next step by moving in the direction of, of the bush. And, and then the voice of God says, do not come any closer Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is only the second time in the Bible that the word holy appears. The first is in Genesis, where God says to, uh, that, well, I won't even go into that. That will take us too much time. It's the second time. We're going to hear this word a lot more in the days to come. And we're going to hear that word holy, holy, holy in, in in cataclysmic and spectacular ways as we go down the trail of Exodus. But it is the word that most describes the transcendent purity and power of God that we're going to meet further in the Exodus series. God introduces himself to Moses as the God who worked in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the great patriarchs of the Hebrew family from which Moses has descended. And when he hears that this is the same being that encountered those heroic figures of the past, Moses is overcome with a feeling of unworthiness and humility and we're told he hides his face he hides his face in awe and humility before the presence of God. But God reassures Moses that while he is holy, he is also loving and compassionate. And he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know if we can imagine the level of excitement this kind of message would have brought to Moses. I, I think we can only guess at how many times over the past 40 years Moses had, had thought of how he'd blown the opportunity to be there in Egypt at the right hand of the seat of power and help his people. 
But because he couldn't manage his anger and his emotions, he'd lost the ability. How many times had he thrown up prayers of remorse or, 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 or anguish? God, please help my family beyond my reach. And now God is coming to him and saying, I've never stopped caring for them. I'm going to rescue them from bondage, Moses. And I'm going to take them from that ruthless place to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. They're going from prison to Disney World, only vastly more. You can just imagine how Moses' heart must have leapt and how he must have thought, really? Really? And then the other shoe drops. So now go, says the Lord. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I'm not sure how many times I've prayed Lord, would you fix that problem? Would you, would you repair that relationship? Would you move those resources? Lord, would you do this without ever expecting or really reflecting deeply on the possibility that his answer to that prayer would be, yes, I will, and I'm sending you. I'm sending you to do that. Maybe one of the most important things we need to be asking every time we come before God in prayer is, Lord, how would you use me to be part of the answer to this prayer. It is really striking that when God first speaks in this text, Moses steps right up and says, I quote, here I am, Lord. Like we just sang a little earlier. Here I am, Lord. You know, I'm available. But when it becomes clear that God is not offering something But asking something, Moses has a response that is not even close to the send me in coach kind. Not at all. In fact, that's what's curious about this next part of the story. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I mean, God, me, really? I said earlier that one wild thing about God is that he can surprise us with the way that he appears to us or speaks to us in life. But even wilder can be what he asks us to do to advance his purposes. He can call and challenge us to do things that feel incredibly risky, difficult, or beyond our gifting. In fact, 
He often does that. He calls us to do risky, difficult things beyond our immediate gifting. In part, I suspect, because he knows that in our trying to do these things, we will depend upon him. We will grow in our dependence and relationship with him. We will know that the results come from him. But but Moses models here what I think is a very normal way to respond when God you know, asks this kind of thing. Uh, I wish we had time to go verse by verse, but if, we, if you read on in chapter three and four, as I hope you already have or will today, you'll hear Moses explaining to God all of the reasons why accepting this assignment clearly won't work. It, 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 I know it's a case of the ant telling the author of quantum physics that he obviously hasn't thought this stuff through, and it is kind of humorous in that regard, but, but I, I think it's just so human, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's worth sort of noting what he says here, and I'm just going to paraphrase. First of all, Moses says, God, I can't go because I don't know your name. People are going to wonder who sent me, and I don't even know who you are, what your proper name is. And so God says, I can solve that for you. My name is Yahweh. Hebrew, Aramaic, literally means I am who I am or I am who I always will be. It's interesting to note, by the way, in John's gospel, this is the name Jesus chooses for himself. Who are you? I am who I am. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. He goes through all these I am statements. Why does Jesus do this? People wonder, gosh, why does he describe himself that way? Hello, Exodus. Hello, same being at work all across time. I am who I am. That's who I am. Tell them I am sent you, God says to Moses. So when God sort of bypasses this first excuse, Moses says then, well, I, I can't go because the Egyptians are way more powerful than me, God. I don't stand a chance against them, so God says, it's okay. I'm going to strike the Egyptians with shows of power so phenomenal that they will not only do what you say on my behalf, Moses, they will provide you with reparations from that slavery on your journey out of the land. You can read the text for yourself. So Moses shifts tactics a third time. I can't go, God, because nobody's going to listen or believe that it was you that actually showed up to me. Well, God says, I've got that covered. I'm giving you three supernatural signs you can do to show that you have my authority. And they involve a, a staff that will turn into a snake. They involve a, uh, an ability to take a hand and slip it into his cloak and have it come out leprous and then slip it back in and have it come out totally healed. And they involve the ability to take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground and have it turn into blood. Believe me, says God, they will know you have unusual authority. They will. So finally, Moses digs deep and he offers one last reason why he can't possibly go. God, I can't go 
Because what you've asked me to do is to sort of explain this all to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. And I'm a terrible public speaker. I mean, I'm humble. I slur my words. I stumble over things. I'm a terrible public speaker. God, you need somebody who can speak really well to the Israelites and the Egyptians. Please send someone else, he says. He manages to get that out. Please send somebody else. How many times, again, do we pray? Ah, big problem out there. Big need. Somebody needs to address it. Please send somebody else. And the text says that at this, God's patience almost runs out. The Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I think this is actually God just chilling himself out and saying, okay, I'm not going to squash the ant. He's just an ant. Have you thought about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well, God says. I will send him with you. But Moses, I still want you to go. As we move to a close today, let me just acknowledge that it's not a mystery why Moses or any of us, I think, would want to resist the call of God to go and do things that are risky, difficult, or beyond our usual gift set. Right? This is a normal human response. For to say really to God uh, is, is just a natural human response to being challenged to stretch beyond our normal parameters. What is uncommon, I think, and what is almost supernatural is when the call of God comes to someone and they end up saying, in spite of it all, a heartfelt yes. Yes, God, I'll go. I think of when God called Abraham and Sarah out of Ur of the Chaldees. They had a lavish lifestyle. They were set in all kinds of wonderful ways. God said, as you may recall, I want you to get up and go to the land that I will show you. Which land, they say, the land that I will show you. How will we know it? I'll show you when you get there. And they went. I think of a peasant woman named Mary and her betrothed, Joseph, and the call of God came to them. And they said, I want you to bear and to raise up the one who will be the Messiah of the world. And it was against every one of their carefully laid plans. And it would involve great suffering and difficulty and risk. And it was beyond their gift set in all kinds of ways, I'm sure. And they said, yes. Mary said, yes, let it be to me according to thy will, Lord. I think of what Moses and Zipporah, his wife, ultimately did in the Exodus story. And these examples that we read in the scripture beg the question, what made the difference for them? What gave them the ability to say that yes in spite of the anxieties 
What gives anybody the courage and the grace to say yes to God when his surprising call asks so much of us? The answer, I'm convinced, is embedded in this particular story. Exodus chapter three and verse 12. Moses asks God, who am I to fulfill this calling? And God says, in effect, wrong focus, Moses. It's not about who you are. Can you fill in the blank? It's about who I am. And God says, I will be with you. Think about how consistent this theme is throughout the Bible. Do you think David faced Goliath because he was just unusually gutsy? Or had just total confidence in his slingshot ability? I don't think so. You think Moses ultimately faced Pharaoh because he, he thought as he mused on it, you know, I've got a lot of cred with those people from my former life and, you know, I'll talk to Aaron and he can help school me in this whole persuasion and oratory stuff. You think that was what did it? Or do you think Mary agreed to bearing the Messiah and enduring all the suffering that would go with that role because she thought, you know, I am woman, I am strong. I just don't think that would have been enough. The main asset that each of these figures relied upon, and all through history it's worked the same way, is because something deep in them recognized and believed that God was with them. God was with them. So as we head out from here today, I I know that some of you are right now in a challenging place of decision, or will be shortly. Through some burning bush, some experience of life, God has gotten your attention, and he's shaken you up, and, and he's called you to go be part of his redemptive action in some way. And there's a part of you that naturally says, really, me? That, now, and there's a part of you that is tilting towards saying, yes, I know I should go. Yes, Lord, I I will go. I will go and face this sin or compulsion or addiction or blind spot in my life and I will find your power for real lasting change. I will go and I will speak the truth that must be spoken in that situation or in that relationship that's broken and I will humbly and perseveringly work for a new day. I will go walk this journey with illness that I don't want to walk. I will crawl through the valley of the shadow of death if that's what's required and not give up faith or hope. I will train myself to develop the capacities that I need to be of greater service to you, Lord. I will rededicate myself to parenting this incredibly difficult child or to caring for this difficult parent 
I will go confront this bully or this injustice. I will go to Egypt, God. And I will be your servant there. Not because of my strength, but because of your strength at work through me. Where's your Egypt? What are you called to to go and do there? And how can you remind yourself often and the people around you that the God of the universe is with you? Here ends the reading. May God bless to us his holy word and give us all that we need as we walk from this place to live it out. Amen.